on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's Talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, for our last episode in Women's History Month, the OBS has an exclusive interview with the artistic director of the San Francisco Opera Center, Coach Carrie Ann Matheson, goes inside the huddle with Matt and Oliver to lay out the game plan for her young Merilini and Adler charges. And then we play through the Opperland March Madness bracket to the final four. Did your pick go the distance? Plus, two-minute drill, the OBS bump helps out yet again. Man, do I get tired of saying that. (laughs) Oliver Camacho, great to see you tonight. Yesterday was some anniversary of uh, the Torvalind Dean uh, World Championships or something like that, and everybody was sharing the video uh, of them doing Bolero. I don't know if it was actually yesterday, but I just saw it a lot in my feed. I don't know if anybody else had that happen to them as well. It was all over the place, yeah. It was everywhere, yeah. (laughs) So that was in your feed, Matt Cummings? Oh, constantly. Can't get enough figure skating. And that's that's true. Well, I, unfortunately, I missed it because I have a, a program written into my computer that basically removes all mentions of Bolero from the internet. Because that's what <laughs> I Definitely don't want to know why that is. Ashley Hardgrave, you have never wanted to tape a show so fast tonight on a Monday night. Get it going. Get it going, guys. Wrap this up. Okay, listen, guys. The Razorbacks are in the Elite Eight. I repeat, the Arkansas Razorbacks <laughs> are in the Elite Eight. That is a sentence no one should ever say and have it be true. And An yet, absolute here we are. stunning turn of events. It, I mean, this has been a playoff of upsets, but I, I mean, I think we do get to take the cake here. Um, I do understand that we record this for Dallas Opera and that Baylor is not too far from Dallas. My apologies to my employer on this. I'm going to be wearing Razorback Red tonight as my sweet, sweet Razorbacks take on the Baylor Bears. So. By the time this airs, it will be over. So my excitement is all for a lot of reasons or the reasons are over. But either way, go Hawks. Houston, of course, in the Elite Eight. That might be a good thing or a bad thing for our Dallas fans. Michigan in the Elite Eight. That's not a surprise. Alabama crashing out to Maryland. Wow. (sighs) The tide did not roll. Let's talk (laughs) some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So we are so thrilled this week to present uh, an interview that we did with maestro Carrie Ann Matheson. Uh, Thanks so much to her publicist for helping us just nail her down for a couple of minutes. She's one of the most busy coaches, pianists uh, in the field right now. And she, as you know, uh, is the director of the San Francisco Opera Center. And of course, we wanted to talk about that. Um, We're going to hear her playing a little bit of a, of a recital she did with Benjamin Bernheim, one of our favorite tenors. Uh, but Matt, anything else you want to do to set up this interview? It was such a great experience getting to talk to Carrie Ann Matheson. She has a really refreshing passion, not only for teaching young singers about how to prepare their music, but how to make sure that their voices as artists are well-formed and individual. And uh, I'm really looking forward to what that'll mean, both for the singers she gets to work with and for San Francisco Opera Center as a whole. So here is Carrie Ann Matheson playing Morgan. You'll want to jump in and sing, but then uh, we'll get into the conversation with Carrie Ann. 
it's been really interesting in my life to see that on on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean that that we have a way that we're trained in America that everything there, there's sort of one way that you approach auditions there's a way that your binder needs to be arranged when you're a singer there's a there's a standard of pronunciation with your languages that is done through phonetics generally because often over here we don't have the same immersion in languages that people have access to um, in Europe and so there's a polish and a shine that I often see on uh, in young American singers that is not necessarily there on the other side of the Atlantic. It's a little bit more raw, a little bit more risky, dare I say, um, from European singers. And I think that comes from, it, it's a cultural thing. It's not so tidy. And even, you know, when I went from, from the Met to Zurich and listening to the Met Orchestra with that amazing sound that they have and this depth and this richness and this precision that the Met Orchestra has. And then I went to Zurich and it's not to say that they're not precise, but the values somehow are different. There's a difference in the collaboration. There's a difference in the, in the, taste of it somehow. Um, and so I think I would recommend that every single American singer get and young American musician actually get over to Europe and do some training over there because they're much more willing to push boundaries than we are on this side of the Atlantic. And I it's love one of the things that I'm super, sorry, Oliver, I'm like, no, I'm no. super excited to bring that now into this program, into our programs in San Francisco. I love that you use the word messy because I, I would never have said that, but I'm glad you did because <laughs> there are some singers who I love uh, who are not American singers uh, who do things. It's like, oh, well, that didn't work, but they went for it. <laughs> and anyway, they made it their own, you know? I, I, I guess, what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to be perfect? Because mm -hmm. that's an unattainable goal and who defines that anyway, right? So uh, it's about taking risks. And I find that somehow some, uh, uh, some North American singers and, and musicians are, are afraid to put themselves out there and take risks and go for it and miss it, but make an effect at, uh, on the journey. And that makes for a better um, audience experience for me anyway. So you would say it's, it's a fair... Uh, observation, maybe not criticism, of American singers that we are clean and polished, but maybe maybe too buttoned up. You know, that's a we're generalizing hugely yeah. here, of course. But yes. um, I think if we're going to make that generalization, I would say that I I would encourage all young musicians on this side of the Atlantic to take bigger risks. Can you talk a little bit more about the preparation that goes into being able to take a risk like that? Like, how do you work with singers to get them into a place where they feel comfortable making strong choices? Oh, I love this question. I just got chills from that question. Matt. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think ultimately it comes down from no down to knowing who you are as an artist and what you want to say, because the truth is what, I want 
to convey, I'm going to look at that through my lens. What you want to convey, you're going to look at that through your lens and all of the same thing. We all have something to say. And the closer that we get into knowing who we are and what we represent as artists and what is important to us, the more we're able to take risks and go for things. But we need to know what that is first, because of course, as you go through school, there are things that are non-negotiable. You have to learn what the notes are. You have to learn what the rhythms are. You have to learn what the text is. And that's like a, um, it's a structure. And we have that structure. But once that's there, how we, how we decorate around that structure is up to us. And all three of us here on this call are going to do that differently. And if I try to do it, if I try to make music through your lens, I'm going to fail because there's no way that I can do that. But I have to have done the steps to think through what I actually think. <laughs> How do I actually want to convey this music and not let someone tell me what to do? And I think it's probably a part of, uh, it's a rite of passage for all students. You have a time when teachers tell you how to do things and you copy them and you emulate them and you try to fit your artistry into the box that they're, the parameters that your teachers are giving you. And then there's a moment, hopefully, that you reach as an artist and you go, okay, I buy this, I buy this, I don't really buy this, I'd prefer to do this. And then you're confident to go out and, and take things under your own control. And being flexible, of course, for conductors or directors who want you to do things different ways. But we're so sure if, and that that's the right way for you, that, that there's your, you can take whatever risks you want. Hmm. I'm, I always am concerned that, um, you know, as singers, young, young, especially when you're in the young artist stage, that the singer is trying to please so hard, you know, their teachers, their coaches, the conductors, and they think that taking a risk or doing something that's highly individualistic uh, is a way to not get rehired, you know? Yeah, I, I, I hear that and I see that, but making yourself a blank slate of beige is probably the surest way not to get <laughs> rehired or hired at all. Yeah. I mean, if we look at the singers that we really love who get on stage and take huge risks, they elicit very strong reactions, right? And that's what we want. We don't want to go and see a cast of people who have exactly the same opinion and exactly the same approach to things. What's interesting is how each person's taste is brought in and collectively as a whole, it makes some a really exciting product in the end. But if you have too many people who have no opinion, that makes for a super dull evening at any concert or any opera. So yeah, I hear your point, but Let's let's break that. Let's like let's do something about that. <laughs> well, we love juicy stories, and I know that you're not going to name names on this show. But do you have any anecdotes about preparation uh, on a big stage? Um. Well, yeah. I mean, oh, 
Sorry. It's all right. <laughs> um, happens all the time. Was that the ding of the person? <laughs> like, like, Don't tell that story, Carrie Ann. <laughs> um, you know, look, um, everyone wants to get on stage and, and do their best. That's for sure. Um, I think what's really important for any young singer is to know, or any professional singer, is to know how much preparation time you need to get on stage and feel good. Um, there will come a time that you can't like pull it out of the bag at the last minute because you've got too much else going on. And there was one very, a, a performance that I prompted at the Met some years ago that is just stamped on me because this poor singer got up there in a very important role and was not prepared. And it threw off the cast, the conductor, the orchestra. Um, I was the prompter. Um, and whatever was going on in that person's life to allow them to get up on stage in that way, I, I, I have sympathy for that, I guess. But if you're a professional, that's the minimum you have to do. You have to know what your notes are, where your entrances are. Um, you have to be prepared so that you, you're a good colleague. <laughs> um, yeah, I will never forget that performance. I needed okay. a big, strong drink after that. And one. we will all now go to your uh, opera base and see <laughs> what you could have possibly <laughs> been talking about, and try to no. and try to try to correlate it with parterre reviews. It's not, worth it. it, not worth the effort. It's not worth the effort. Take the moral of the story: is you know what? If you are prepared and you get on stage, you, your chance of success is much higher, and your chance that the the your colleagues will love to work with you and have a great musical experience along with you is, is, is higher. And I guess in the end, for all the young singers that I work with, um, I don't want them to be prepared because I told them to. I want them to be prepared because that's what they need to do to get on stage and feel like they can take the risks that we were just talking about. You can't take risks if you're terrified that you don't know what's coming next. <laughs> and that has to do with knowing how much time and being honest with yourself about how much time you need to prepare stuff. Listening to you talk about preparation, not just on a superficial level of the, the, just the notes or just the rhythms, but really getting that preparation down into your core and exp having something to say with it. Can you talk about how your, that, that experience, not just as a coach, but really as an educator is, is going to, what, what kind of an opportunity that, that brings at the San Francisco Opera Center? We have an enormous opportunity at the San Francisco Opera um, to, to really be able to make a great impact on a lot of young singers, both with our Adler Fellowship and our, the Marilla Opera Program. Um, I guess what we are trying to accomplish there is not only to teach them how to sing and how to be great performers on stage, but things like how to, how to ask the questions you need to ask to get inside your characters. That comes from an acting standpoint, that comes from a tradition standpoint, that comes from knowing um, how to look at a phrase. I find that a lot of young singers that come to, to me for coaching have never actually considered why did the composer write it that way 
he didn't just sort of go, oh, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to, I'm going to write that that way. There's he's when a composer, he or she is looking for something when the line is going up, when they choose to put a word on a particular syllable or a, a note on a particular syllable or a word with an accent on it or something that has to mean something. And I find that young singers um, often don't go below sort of a read through of being able to sing the words uh, and the notes and some dynamics at the same time. So what we're trying to do is come at this from a holistic standpoint that we're give, that with intensive training in acting and how to think through characters to know what your keywords are, to be able to look at the rhythm of a, of a statement. Um, we're coming at it from a time management standpoint. How do you know how much time you need to learn to study a score? And what kind of accountability do you need for that? What kind of team do you need to have around you to have success? How do you keep your finances in order so that you're not worrying about um, needing to get that job <laughs> in order to pay your bills? It gives you a, if you go into an audition and you need to get the job so that you can pay your rent, that audition is gonna feel a lot different than if you go in and go, okay, if I get it, I get it. If I don't, I don't. Let's Seriously, yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so we're looking at building all of this stuff from the ground up to provide a foundation so that people have a whole life perspective on things. So I, I'm so glad you said all of those things. And I trained as a singer and Matt is still actively pursuing a career as a singer. And so I understand a lot of the hardship and the time commitment and the various you know, things you have to study to become a professional singer. But how do you recommend to people who are embarking on this career? You know, what are the important things? Is it the music theory? Do you like study the theory of a whole genre, a whole era of, of, of you know, a whole era of music? Like, okay, this is what happens in French romantic style. This is what happens in German romantic style. Or do you convince, uh, try to encourage them to study, you know, literature or art? or dance, because that also comes to play. Like what are, how do you hone in all of those potential areas of study and focus it on a role or on an art song? That's another great question, Oliver. Um, you know, and balance your checkbook. <laughs> right, well, I mean, the, the, so look, those are real world, real world concerns that we have. They, when you're a young artist, you have to, you have to figure out how to be a financial planner for yourself. You have to figure out how to be a PR person. You have to figure out how to talk to managers, all of that business side, that's for sure. And I think our business in general needs to do better at helping young artists lay that out and figure that out for themselves. So let's keep that over there. On the artistic side, um, I guess, the, the phrase that keeps coming into my head is that we need to be students of life. And often in conservatories, there's this like, I have to practice 24 seven. I, I, you only really interact with other musicians. And so you're around people who think like you, who do like you, who are interested in the same things that you are. 
Um, and it can become a very narrow-minded, uh, singular focus. And that's not going to make a great artist. So the more that we can get out and experience life and learn about cultures and people and languages and art and literature that is not stuff that we already know, the more complete we are going to be as artists. So I guess to, to be curious is the main thing. I mean, you can, if you are passionately interested in French romantic opera, sure, go and learn everything you can about French romantic opera. I can tell you in my own experience, I did not do that. I'm an instinctive musician. I know the kind of music that I'm drawn to. I feel how it goes. I know what the traditions are. I've watched enough of it. I will read one of the things that I need to know. I know, okay, yeah, so this composer wrote this for this, for this singer. So, um, and that's mostly in me helping to figure out how to assign roles to people. That if you look like, okay, that person sang all of these roles. So let's see the composer had that voice in mind. Um, that's an interesting thing to look at, but I don't base my assignments or my recommendations on that. It's because it, everyone is different. Um, we're so happy to have caught you in this month because we're rounding out Women's History Month. And um, I really wanted to get you on, but I'm also tired of talking about like, oh, you're the first this or whatever, because it's like, yeah, I am the first, and it's a, it's embarrassing that I am, but I am at any rate, you know. And so we don't need to talk about that per se. But can you talk about your experience as a woman in a field that um, I've got confirmation <laughs> is dominated by gay white men? Um, hmm. You know, there are a lot of really strong, talented women in this business. Lots. And I can say that I started my career not being aware that that was the case, <laughs> that the, not that 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 this was the idea that gay white men ran this business. I I it never occurred to me at the Met. There are so many women on the music staff there that I looked up to, and I watched them work every day. And I remember the first time that I was in a rehearsal and a European conductor. Um, literally, if he had something musical to say, he would talk over my head. Mm. And if he had something to say about the schedule, he would turn to me. And I had been working at the Met at that point for over 10 years before I felt that. So maybe that's just me not thinking, oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a gay white man, oh, that's bad. <laughs> but it, it really didn't occur to me until that moment that, that I had to fight an extra battle because I, there were so many examples for me to look up, at, look up to. I see it on the recital stage um, now that they're the, the, the major players um, in the recital world are, it's, it's very white male dominated for sure. But that's also changing. Um, my, 
I, I've never had anyone tell me I couldn't do something because I was a woman. I, well, no, that's not true. One time someone told me that, that a conductor didn't want a woman at the piano, which I don't get that, but um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. As your nails are too long to touch the keys. <laughs> yeah. Very strange. Um, so, you know, all of that to say that um, it didn't affect me. It as I went through my career, I just sort of went on as Carrie Ann Matheson doing what I do and, and didn't pay any attention to if people, if there was like a click that I wasn't part of, I just mm -hmm. sort of kept my eyes on my, on my own goals and um, have, have achieved uh, many of those goals thus far. And I, there are women working in this business, some, some really fantastic conductors um, who I love to assist. And so all of that stuff that women can't work together and stuff like that, I think it's hooey. I mean, it all is down to, to personality and, um, and people being secure in their own musicianship and what their own goals are. And then we just go from there. <laughs> Coach Carrie Ann inside the huddle with Matt and Oliver. Ashley, the NBA is expanding. Yes, uh, NBA has a new league. It's their first expansion overseas. It's called the Basketball Africa League. And it's been talked about for a long time. They've been trying to plan it. It finally has a premiere date on May 16th. It's a partnership between the NBA and the International Basketball Federation. This is very exciting. They're operating a league outside of North America. It's going to be played in Dakar, Senegal. It's going to be played in Rwanda. It's going to be all over the continent of Africa. Um, that's amazing. Also, did you know that the Razorbacks are in the Elite Eight. Did you know that they're? I might have Baylor? heard that. I may have heard that. Yeah, they're, they're, they're playing Baylor uh, Monday Monday night in in about an, an hour. Um, and did you know that the Razorback is is a feral hog? So my entire state is cheering for a feral hog. <laughs> That's right. It's Going feral for feral very hogs. Similar to Weston. I really hope the NBA Basketball Africa League is on TV. I would love to watch that. Major League Baseball starts on Thursday. It is going to be early April, after all. I had completely forgotten about that. Will Wrigleyville here in Chicago be a complete ghost town? Here's hoping. If St. Patrick's Day is any indication, no. <laughs> Chalk Talk is up next. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. All right, so here we are, the Opeland March Madness bracket. The field is set of the 16 <laughs> teams. And tonight, we're going to work our way to the final four so that oh on boy. next week's show, we will go the final steps. Here's how it works. I'm the judge. Finally, Uncle George back in a position of power <laughs> and authority. Dangerous. And I'm picking, I'm picking all the winners uh, for this thing. Here's what I'm trying to pick. I'm trying to pick the next dark horse opera that should become part of the mainstream repertoire, part of the camera. Mm. All the, all of these operas are definitely, I would say, lesser known. We're going to debate that a little bit on this segment. Here's how it works. Our panelists each get a sentence or two to make a case for their opera. I'm going to pick a winner. We're going to move quickly through this round of 16 to the Elite Eight, and that's where we're going to get into a little more back and forth. Let's get it going. Uh, Oliver's Ariadne and Weston's Lariana. Oliver, what is so, your case? Dishona Utgatoya Ariadne by Conradi, uh, one of the first operas that we know of from the uh, Hamburg's Gunsmarket. 
and it shows a conflation of French, Italian, and German styles. So it's everything you want in a Baroque opera all wrapped into one. And Weston? Well, quite frankly, it's an easy case to make because if Larian existed, it would be in the standard <laughs> repertoire. <laughs> that is definitely not true. But I... <laughs> I mean, I if it survived, it existed. We just it, right, right, it exists. Right, right, right. It exists. That yeah. may be not true, but I am going to take this as a winner over Oliver's Ariana. <laughs> yes, <laughs> amazing. I can't believe. Uh, I'd like to thank the committee and my parents. I mean, I stand Monteverdi, but oh, you have no <laughs> idea what the rest of it sounds like. What if he? Uh, you know, what what he just like really phoned it in. You know? What if you picked a lemon, George? You're going to have to deal with the consequences. It's there. what we call an upset. All right, over to Ashley's The Beggar's Opera against Matt's Zemele. Ashley, take it away. Make your case. All right, John Gay's The Beggar's Opera. Couple of quick points. 1720s political satire jukebox musical. And there's a sequel in the West Indies. Are you not entertained? <laughs> Matt Cummings. Okay, is Semele the darkest horse that we have in this race? No, it is not. But when you compare it to, you know, those eternal handle chestnuts like Messiah or Giulio Cesare, it is definitely lower down on the list. This opera is full of unrelenting and unrepentant bops that will keep your toes tapping from beginning to end. This is this is kind of a blowout game, in my opinion, as well. Semele... With 17 productions on major European and, um, excuse me, international stages in the last five years, Beggar's Opera, zero. Zemele takes this in a blowout. Oh, wow. I, you know what? Good game. Good game. This is where we would run past each other and slap hands. Good yeah, game. Yeah, that's game. true. <laughs> Going over to the modern bracket now. Matt Cummings, you're up next with... Um, the Fiery Angel against Oliver's Mamel de Teresias. Matt, what do you got? So The Fiery Angel, I would love to see a production where a director can make it make sense. I just want that to happen. <laughs> the score is crazy, but it's the kind of controlled chaos where you're not like too turned off like anything Weston might suggest. <laughs> Oliver Camacho. So Therese becomes a man. Her breasts float away like two balloons. And not only does she become a man, she also becomes a general and a member of parliament. Uh, perfect story for 2021. It really is. And although Fiery Angel was supposed to be done at the Met in 2020, obviously that didn't happen. For me, Mama de Teresias is just everything that modern opera should be. And this one is going to go on to the next round. Uh, Yay! Uh, uh. That was, awesome. see, that was well thought. You can see Fire Angel floating away like two balloons, <laughs> if I if I may make that reference. But you don't know what it is. <laughs> no Moving down to the other half of the modern bracket, Weston Williams' resurrection against Hardgrave's gallantry. Weston, take it away. Well, similarly to the Fiery Angel, it does need a really good director to really make sense of it. And unlike Matt, I'm going to play to my audience here and be like, hey, George, wouldn't that be a great challenge for you. Wouldn't that be a dream to direct? Working the refs, I see. Mm, yeah, you got, you got, and I'll just slip you five bucks right outside of the frame too. Oh, so uh, we'll see, we'll see who, okay. who wins this one. Yeah. Ashley. Listen, we don't get enough Douglas Moore in our lives in general, and we certainly don't get enough Douglas Moore musical tributes to 1950s drama and capitalism with sung <laughs> commercials and a love triangle that includes a nurse, a businessman, and the doctor. You can dress it up, you can dress it down. 
It's fast. You can get it done in a half hour. It's so much fun. It leaves the audience wanting more. Gallantry is your gal. (laughs) You make a good case, Ashley. I think Gallantry is one of the most boring operas I have ever come across in my life. Peter Maxwell Davies is a brilliant composer. Interesting that both of these choices, both in the English language, for me, Resurrection takes this by more than just the the spread. the bribe. <laughs> more than just more than just the bribe. This seems like a grudge match. If I be it if known, I'm going to be perfectly honest, be it known that that five dollar holler that Williams did over in the corner, we're going to keep that on record. It's okay. I'm broke now, so I can't do it again. Fair. <laughs> Down to the classical region, and uh, we're going to go back to Matt Cummings now. Midday against Weston Williams' uh, Mondo opera by Handel. Medea Mondo de la Luna is... by Haydn. Thank you. Haydn. Thank you. Haydn. Yeah. Clearly, this is the one I want to win. <laughs> Trying to throw me off my game by interrupting me, Oliver, but it's not going to work this time. Uh, Medea is the classic diva vehicle that's truly a wonderful composition from head to toe, featuring the love triangle of Medea, Jason, and uh, the new acolyte who steals Jason away from Medea and causes her to burn the temple down and kill their children. <laughs> Weston, make that case, man. I mean, uh, have you ever heard the term space opera? Well, the moon is in space. <laughs> that is all. I, I I yield the rest of my time. Strong that, case. I mean, this is so funny because for me, like I was absolutely going to pick uh, the Haydn <laughs> Mondo. That effort that you just put forward was a disgrace. <laughs> trying to rest on your laurels. To the sport. <laughs> That's what should have that two fifty and two fifty. Really well, you should have gotten two <laughs> All right, and then uh, we're going to throw it back to Oliver here against Ashley. Oliver, take it away. Look, we're talking about dark horses. I'm always the brown person in the room, and Joseph Boulogne is the brown composer <laughs> in this entire uh, bracket. So it is a very white bracket. It's 2021, George. You got to put a brown through. Ashley, Donna DeLago. Great. Now I feel like a monster. All right, here we go. <laughs> Early Rossini, La Donna Del Lago. You got ladies. You got lakes. It's Rossini <laughs> at the beginning of his bane. It's better than Brigadoon, like many things. It's better than Brigadoon. Scottish Highlands vehicle for your very best mezzo that moves. This is the one you want to celebrate. It's Rossini, so it's reachable, but the story's a little bit weird. It's a little bit about civil war, but it doesn't scare people. Uh, and you got ladies and lakes. What else do you need? Yeah, it may be about Scotland. It may be better than Brigadoon. It's not better than Lucia di Lammermoor, though. If I want a Scottish opera, that's where I'm going to go. Oliver <laughs> makes a great case on this one. Can't you Come have on! to be careful not to have too much Walter Scott influence in your opera? <laughs> that's <laughs> very <true>. dangerous. <laughs> I wrote and... that in my diary just this morning. Wrapping up then the Sweet 16, this is going to be the romantic region. A lot of debate on the show last week about whether or not these operas were considered romantic. Mm. Ashley Weston, we're going to stick with your pairing. Ashley, Cendrillon, not the Cendrillon you're thinking of. And Weston, Ariane, not the one that you're also thinking of. <laughs> now, Oliver pulled his, uh, his, his identity card I'm just going to go ahead and pull the lady card here, all right? We have a lady composer in our bracket, repping the romantic period, lady composer, doing Cinderella, class warfare, eat the rich, but then you got to marry him because that's how you live successfully afterwards. 
Basically, your singers are melismatic robots. It's French. It's beautiful. It's Cendrillon. Go with Fiardo. Weston. I would say uh, almost the exact same pitch, minus the fact that there's like 17 versions of Cinderella and they're all kind of boring. Uh, and however, you know, Bluebeard, I mean, oh, what a classic. And you want to talk about girl power. Bluebeard has two lines. No one cares about him. And you get all of like this Duca orchestration, like writing at a height of his powers that were never really seen from again. And I just love this opera so much. And I will cry, George, if you uh, if he doesn't maybe make it, if it doesn't make it through this bracket, I will cry. Get, get your Kleenex ready, man. Look, Cendrillon <laughs> by Massenet is one of the most boring operas I think I've ever seen. Probably Cenerentola, I don't know as well. I think it's time for a new version of this opera. I love this choice, Ashley. This production is coming Who to... Who is this referee? This production is coming to <laughs> Milwaukee uh, allegedly in 2022. So if you are in the Midwest, you might have a chance to see it. Cenerentola oh, wow. goes ahead. A time-honored oh. tradition of all complaining about the refs together. <laughs> I mean, you don't know Cenerentola, but Massenet's Sandrion is boring. Great. I mean, <laughs> I have directed a scene from Cenerentola. That mm. was exciting. As a mm. as a whole, drink is it, is it really a dark horse? I don't know. Um, Oliver, we're going to stick with you though. Um, Capuletti against Mats Yenifer. Well, mine is really a romantic era opera. I would say that Yennefer wow. is more approaching the modern era. So I, <laughs> yeah, I should win but by not default. It's a technical <laughs> foul. Um, and also, you know, Bellini is the pinnacle of bel canto melodic writing. And without Bellini, you don't have Norma. And without Norma, you don't have bel canto. So here is a little baby Bellini opera with a story everybody knows and loves. <laughs> and you also have, uh, you know, we don't have women in kilts like in La Donna del Lago. Uh, but you do have a fantastic vehicle for a mezzo and a stunning aria for the Giulietta. Mm-hmm. Make a good case, Oliver Matt. Over to you. Okay. So this slander against Yenufa, it will not go unanswered. <laughs> Because this opera was written in 1904, before many, many Puccini operas that are unquestionably romantic. And this we're talking about the kind of lush and really physical orchestration and music that, even though the libretto is set to prose and not poetry, we are talking about the capital R romantic of humanity and learning to live in together and me and which of your cousins you're gonna get to marry <laughs> if your stepmother doesn't drown your baby what could be more romantic than that a classic Oliver? scenario we've all been through sign me up sign me up as well for that i just you know if we're talking about operas that should enter the standard rep i don't think of capuletti i really i really don't i, I don't know why we need that story <laughs> as part of the standard rep when we can get it other places so for me yenifa with 44 productions of this opera from 2018 scheduled through 2022 44 productions to me it's this is enough. an absolute <laughs> blowout here so true I love your rationale that uh, we don't need the story of Romeo and Juliet but we do need another Cinderella huh <laughs> very clear I mean I'm right with you on that one Oliver <laughs> All right, so now we are into the Elite Eight, and we're oh going to go back up to the Baroque uh, region here. So we have Ladiana versus Zemele. and Semele, by the way. It's not a German opera. <laughs> <laughs> and it's about Greek people. Listen, you know, <laughs> Zemele. <laughs> 
Um, let's see here. Let's have Weston go first again. I want you to make a different case than before. Now that we're in the Mm, Elite Eight, this goes for the whole panel. I want to hear some new arguments here. Well, when you look at the uh, the rest of this bracket, um, what you see is, granted, a lot of dark horses, but you don't have any dark horses that have had the impact that one aria from Lariana has had. I mean, you see shades of, of La Châtemie Morier in everything from Wagner to Strauss to uh, whatever they did in the classical era. Uh, it's, they were it's, on the moon. They were on the moon. <laughs> um, and and Monteverdi, as a composer, is such a pivotal cornerstone, not just of, of opera, but of like music in general. His theories about how you could create meaning through sound um, and, uh, and combining it with poetry are still so revolutionary. And they, they still like it still sends chills down to my down my spine whenever I hear anything by him. And granted, this opera is lost, but I think that if it were if it were one day found, it would be an absolutely earth shattering event in the opera world. And that's why I think it should win. Matt Cummings, I have a feeling you're not going to have to break a sweat here. I mean, I'll do my best against someone who's invoking the name of Wagner in a Baroque round. (laughs) But, uh, you know, Baroque opera does have a reputation a little bit for being so convoluted and the plots are, are endless, just like twists and disguises. But the way that the story of Semele tells this myth, I think all of those kind of disguising, deception, uh, plot twists actually make intrinsic sense in the way that the story kind of plays out and it doesn't feel like you have to bow down to the convention in order to make this work so that is why Semele is my is my gal yeah it's a good it's a good argument i i wish you had said that um west in your opera was lost a little earlier and that's definitely where it's going to end up um in in this pile uh Semele, I, it is, you know, really for me, like at the heart of the Baroque, I think it's a great representation of that era and of that drama. So for me, it's going to go into the final four. Good game. Good oh, game. Sleep. Good game. Oh, sleep. Why does uh. it leave me? <laughs> let's, let's go on over to the... Myself, uh, I shall adore right ...modern <laughs> region then. So this is Oliver's Mamel de Teresias against Weston again, Peter Maxwell Davies' Resurrection. Oliver, you go first. So I'm going to keep playing the diversity card. It's a different argument for this opera. The opera itself (laughs) is amazing. The plot is super, um, like for being a surrealist plot from the early 20th century to being something that is very current now, it had great foresight. And Francis Poulenc was an out homosexual, one of the first openly gay composers that we know of full stop. Uh, you have to hand it to a man who had that much courage uh, in that time, in that mid-20th century. Mm-hmm. Weston Williams. Peter Maxwell Davies, also uh, an out gay man. So where is your lead now, Oliver? <laughs> <laughs> but mine was French. <laughs> I will say it involves balloons. I would also say, um, to, to use some of Oliver's other arguments against him, uh, even though in terms of period, Theresius is a modern production, it is very much a romantic piece at heart, as is a lot of Poulenc, I think. Um, and I think uh, what I go to the opera for, what I would like audiences to see, is something that is sonically surprising, sonically, uh, that, that, that really changes your mind on a musical level. Um, and of course, Resurrection is all about 
shaking apart those foundations of what is considered proper and normal and conformist and really breaking it down, bringing in influences all the way from rock to liturgical music to uh, to avant-garde expressionism. And it's just a, a, an, a, an experience like no other. And I think just, one... we, need to, we just need to make sure that people don't leave an intermission, though, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we simply won't have one. How about that? Yeah, yeah, that's that's how you do it. Honestly, it really is such a, a fascinating work that I still think uh, captures a certain spirit of rebellion and like fighting for something that uh, the establishment just can't give you that we really need in this day and age. Yeah. For me, in this modern region, I want something that's really going to push the envelope. And for me, Peter Maxwell Davies does just that. When you look at the body of his work, right? The Lighthouse, Eight Songs for a Mad King. You mm. think about the other operas, the other uh, teams, if you will, that uh, this <laughs> composer <laughs> has played during the rest of the season. Is Mamel de Teresias a great opera? Absolutely it is. And I don't think it has an intermission either. For me, I'm curious <laughs> about Resurrection. This is an upset. I don't know if Resurrection is going to go all the way, but in this round, it God, does God, I win. hope it doesn't. So far, my $5 <laughs> is really getting me places. So it's made me through two rounds. I'm going to have to scrounge up some extra pocket change before next week. <laughs> Back to the classical region then. And this is uh, Matt against Oliver. Matt, you go first. I mean... First of all, my opera actually is from the classical era and is not by Haydn, Beethoven, or Mozart. And while it does have those kind of recognizable musical styles, it is in an entirely original piece of music that you feel in your bones. I want you to try to listen to the mad scene at the end and not make a witch claw while you're listening to it. Because you can't do it. <laughs> can't be done. Oliver, what do you got? So I already talked about the importance of representation uh, in classical music, so I won't make that argument again. Instead, I will use Matt's own argument against him. Uh, it is a vehicle for a star soprano, and we have the unimprovable upon performance of Maria Callas in this role. So it's been done. In a bastardized edition. It's been done. True. <laughs> it's interesting. This is, To me, this classical region is there is one of these things that is not like the other. Look at the number of productions these operas have had from 2018, scheduled through 2022. Mide, 21. Mondo, 23. Donna del Lago, 13. And um, Oliver's Lover, zero. I am fascinated by this piece. I think the question of representation is absolutely essential. And for me, uh, it will be an underdog, but it is going to go on to the final four. Ooh. Your stats don't include the LA Opera production that just happened? <laughs> just out of curiosity. And I got ahead of myself there. I put Lover going all the way to the finals. Whoops. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well, um, intolerable corruption. I think we need I to think, put a call on that play. I'm going to throw in the throw in the towel here. <laughs> all right. One more round to go. That is the contentious romantic round. And looking at the board, clearly I wrote Yennefer in the wrong slot, but it is <laughs> going against Ashley's Cendrillon. Matt, I want you to go first. 
Okay, so Yennefer not only is a wonderful romantic opera that is unquestionably romantic, but it also features <laughs> some of the most interesting characters in opera, like the Kostelnichka, who is the stepmother who has to decide between the honor of her family and whether or not to murder this baby. It's a question that you're not going to find in your average everyday Cinderella <laughs> opera. So I, I, it's a truly family show, Matt. You know? Ashley, any other argument can- you can make? I really hope so. Uh, do I? Uh, listen, I'm gonna keep pulling that lady card, and I'm gonna slam it down on the table left, right, and center. We have a lady composer in the romantic period. Okay, but in all seriousness, folks, I love to hear sort of the the behind-the-scenes, like, how it's made sort of stories. I love learning those sorts of stories. If you think about this, we pull the lens back on my girl Pauline. Pauline, excuse me. Uh, she comes from this, like, dynasty of musicians. Her father was in the premiere of Barber, like the premiere of Barber. She had this really prolific mm. career as as a singer. Uh, and then Cendrillon was something that she wrote quite literally farting around so her students would have a project. And it is some of the most gorgeous, melismatic, technical stuff. She really went for it. And it was really just as a gift that she would only have heard in her studio. She wasn't doing it for the fame. She wasn't doing it for the Benjamins. I mean, I'm sure she got paid a couple. She already had both of those things, but it's fine. Exactly. Exactly. So this was really just like a pet project for the love of the game, as it were. It's a stunning, beautiful piece of music. The melismas are some of the most enchanting and upsetting things you will ever hear because outside (laughs) of the fifth element, I don't know how people get their voices to move like that. It's a fantastic beautiful stunning thing all couched in a vehicle and a story that we know so while you don't have to worry about what's happening next you can sit back and let the music happen to you but does she drown a baby <laughs> she she doesn't um she does hmm, marry the rich um which mm. is not the same as drowning a baby i would go with that <laughs> one versus the baby drowning i mean choices <laughs> These are these are tough choices. Now, for me, where Yennefer dominated that previous round, and I thought that was very attractive. Now it's up against a different opera, a different composer, and I'm going to put Cendrillon through into the mm. final four. Um, so here we go. No, there it is. It's going in. He's writing it. S- it's done. Doing it for themselves. Set in stone. <laughs> Set I'm, in dry erase. <laughs> set in dry erase on the board behind me. So we now in the right have places. Our, in the right places. <laughs> we now have our final four. Again, I want our panel to just talk us through it. Oliver, do you have a show in the final four? Um, Joseph Boulogne's The Anonymous Lover. Matt Cummings. We're talking about George Friedrich Handel's Semele. Weston Williams. My boy Pete's uh, Resurrection Opera. Ashley Hardgrave. <laughs> Pauline Viardot's Cendrillon. This is definitely not a final four that I would have expected. That's why it is they a call wild it. collection of operas. I'm so excited. <laughs> and that's yeah. why they call it March Madness. We are going to wrap up our Opera Land bracket on next week's show. You definitely want to see that. And of course, let us know who we missed, who should have won, and who got a lucky break. Opera box score at gmail.com. Two minute drill. It's right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Trade news starts with a classic OBS bump. 
along with an exciting season announcement that bridges outdoor performances to a return to the Detroit Opera House, friend of the show Christine Gerke has been named as Associate Artistic Director at Michigan Opera Theater. The three-year appointment has Gerke performing at least once a season in Detroit, driving the casting for MOT Productions and joining Yuval Sharom to form opera's latest dream team. Haymarket Opera Company has named Chase Hopkins as their first ever general director of the Chicago-based Baroque Specializing Opera. Said president of the board, Jerry Teets, Chase has already demonstrated remarkable talent, tireless dedication, and an inspiring vision for the future. In the latest article from Middle Class Artist, Welsh-based baritone Paul Carey Jones writes about how Brexit is the, quote, perfect storm for musicians. A generation of British musicians had grown up with the reality that working and living in any of the 27 other European countries was, in effect, not much more difficult than a Californian traveling to Texas or New York. Maria Jose Siri made history at Opera de las Palmas this week as the first female singer in the history of the house to perform an aria encore. Her Adriana Lecouver so riveted the Spanish audience that they beckoned her back for a second Io son l'umile ancella. Fort Worth Opera is adding to its list of unique partnerships. Music, Memory, and More teams FWO, dementia-friendly Fort Worth, and the United Way Area Agency on Aging to provide musical programming for individuals living with dementia. Each concert includes interactive activities specifically designed for dementia patients. This week's Yellow Cards. Denmark. Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen has announced a plan for a total reopening of the country under the condition of full vaccination of all citizens over the age of 50. Russia. Operalia is back on at the Bolshoi in October. England. The Royal Opera House has announced a full season of live opera starting this September. USA. Opera Philadelphia will produce an outdoor Tosca in May with Anna Maria Martinez and Quinn Kelsey. This week's Red Cards. Austria. Theater an der Wien is closed until further notice due to uncertainty over the length of the government shutdown. Belgium. The country has pushed back its reopening plan to May 1st. France. Paris Opera and Champs-Élysées have canceled all April performances. Germany. The Bayerische Staatsoper has canceled April's Rosenkavalier and Traviata. Spain. Teatro de la Maestranza has canceled Vivica Genot's Argipo. North America. The 50th annual George London Foundation competition has been postponed until next year. On the disabled list, French cultural minister Rosalind Bachelot has been hospitalized with COVID-19 right after spending right after attending a closed performance of Faust at Paris National Opera. French media claims that Bachelot spoke with artists on stage after the show and did not practice social distancing as she took photos with the cast. Ugh, just we not okay with that. Uh, exit stage right. Known as the queen of the nosebleed seats, opera superfan Lois Kirschenbaum has died at the age of 87. Kirschenbaum attended nightly performances of opera and ballet in New York since the early 1950s and was a fixture at the stage door afterward, winning the friendships of some of the biggest performers of the past half century. Diane Martindale, singer, opera director, and co-founder of Chicago's DeCapo Opera Theater, has died at age 87. She directed over a hundred operas and musicals as the company's music director and performed as a singer with the Grant Park Chorus. Australian soprano Taryn Feebig has died at 49. She began her music career as a cellist before switching to vocal performance, eventually becoming a principal soprano at Opera Australia. English tenor Robert Gard has died at the age of 93. Gard was known for his diverse repertoire of anything from Britain to Wagner to a number of operettas. 
Gard leaves behind a number of film and television recordings, including the feature film version of Death in Venice, where he replaced no less than Peter Peers in the role. And on this day, March 29th, Antonio Vivaldi was fired from Pietà because he spent too much time working on his operas. That was in 1716. In 1719, it was the birth of English music critic Sir John Hopkins, who is known for writing the first history of music. Hmm. It was the premiere of Giovanni's Pasiello's Proserpine in Paris in 1803, and in 1836, uh, my boy Richard Wagner wrote, uh, or rather premiered, his first opera, Das Liebes Verbot. In 1871, the Royal Albert Hall opened in London. Queen Victoria was in attendance. Eugene Onegin premiered on this day in Moscow. That was in 1879. And in 1932, it was the birth of American tenor William Brown, who was born in Jackson, Mississippi. In 1936, it was also the birth of English composer Richard Rodney Bennett in Broadstairs, Kent. And in 1991, a great lady, the original polyglot princess of the OBS podcast, Giovanna Jacques, was born. And that's your two-minute drill. That was the soprano Maria Jose Siri singing the aforementioned encore Io son l'umile ancella from Opera de las Palmas. Who knew that they had uh, a ban on encores until this? <laughs> Someone's got to break that ceiling, you know? Yeah, exactly. Who knew there were three languages in that story? I'm so proud of you, George. You yeah. did. <laughs> you, 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 did you handled it like a champ. You did. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave, what's happening down at Fort Worth? So many awesome things. Friend of the show, Afton Battle, continues to crush it. She, when we first spoke with her uh, roughly a year ago, maybe a little less, uh, she was talking about putting together these really unique and outside-the-box partnerships, and she's done it again. And it's such a wonderful, noble uh, sort of undertaking. And, and the reasons are twofold. Number one, you know, she's told, you know, after battles told us more than once in any interview that'll listen, that she really wants her organization to be rooted and serving and in service of the community. I can think of no better way to do that than to pair with some groups that sometimes get a little bit overlooked, Area Agencies on Aging, United Ways. And then also, I, as I've spoken about on this podcast before, the connection between music and memory is so strong. Uh, if you, Again, I'll bark about it again. Oliver Sacks' book, Musicphilia, it talks about how music can help restore uh, neuronic pathways from dementia. It helps with Parkinson's. It helps with Alzheimer's. So I am so delighted to see that this partnership is coming together. And if this is something that you're thinking about, if you've got somebody in your life that might be suffering from dementia that could benefit from this type of programming, they're actually going to be filming it and releasing it for free on YouTube in the month following when the performances happen. So starting as early as I think next week, uh, Fort Worth Opera should have some of these dementia programs on their YouTube. Oliver Camacho, you huh. were equally excited 
I am equally excited, but I am annoyed <laughs> about um, the French cultural minister. If Benjamin Bernheim gets COVID because of this ridiculous woman, mm. I'm sorry. I, we want her to get better. No ill yes. will, but for the love of God, I yeah. I was I was horrified when I read that story, yeah. and I just I was doing that like the cartoon math that there you know when this happens there's three p- people affected and then six and then nine like as you were reading it i was seeing all those x's and o's just ex- expanding out and like half of france has covid because she wanted a photo on stage so good news is that michigan opera theater d- really did have an amazing coup and uh, they're describing this uh trading news as like Beverly Sills leading New York City Opera, um, getting Christine Gerke, who is one of the singers of the moment, uh, to take an administrative role uh, at Michigan Opera Theater at the peak of her career um, is incredible. Um, There's a story that goes that she approached David DeCura years ago and said, hey, how do you become, you know, a opera administrator how do you become the the ceo of an opera company and (laughs) rather than like him laughing at her oh cute you're some dumb soprano that wants to whatever have a full-time job he was like okay well let's let's talk about it you know and i'm so glad that it's someplace like michigan opera theater which can really benefit from her star power not that they Mm -hmm. really need her uh to elevate what they're doing but i'm glad they have her to do to elevate what they're doing to amplify what they're doing and on top of that their season is really cool probably thanks to Yuval Sharon um they're trying to transition from you know covid safe safely distance performances back to the theater and you can really follow this uh very interesting season uh that goes from outdoor concerts and amphitheaters all the way back to the Detroit Opera House and along the way you'll get blue uh the Taswell Thompson and Janine Tesori show uh, a bizarre thing called Bliss, which is 12 hours of three measures of Mozart's Major Figaro, like stretched out or something or repeated over and over again <laughs> by some Icelandic composer, Ragnar Kjartansson. Sounds like Kjartansson. something that uh, I would listen so for to. For you, yeah. yeah. Uh, they're going to do <laughs> That's gonna like be the exact the final... midpoint between West yeah, and Yeah, I'm, I'm replacing Resurrection <laughs> with this for the for the final bracket. Yeah. They're going to do um, Frida by Rodriguez with Catalina Cuervo, who has a Chicago connection. Uh, they're going to do Malcolm X, Life and Times, uh, Anthony Davis opera. Um, that's the season finale. And the penultimate show, super interesting, La Boheme, but make it a palindrome. <laughs> Immobile. I think that's right. <laughs> we did it. We did it. They're going to do La Boheme backwards. So act four is first and act first, act one is last. Oh. So. Yeah. I'm, 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 I love to hear that David Kier kind of laid the foundation, as it sounds, for this hire. I mean, I, I knew David DeKira, and he was such an open-minded, progressive guy for a company that, on the surface, I would argue was a fairly conservative company from when he started it until Yuval Sharon took over and is mm-hmm, now, of course, mm-hmm. blowing the tires off of that Chevy. Insert your <laughs> auto metaphor here. It's a it's a great hire, a three year appointment. I wonder if she's gonna have to live in Detroit. And I don't say that as a as a bad thing. I'm just curious. Uh, who was next? Weston Williams. It's me. I'm next. <laughs> if you look at the if you look at the the rundown we have here in front of us, don't to tell her. Part the curtain a little bit. So I want to talk a little bit about this um, middle class artist uh, uh, um, uh, article. Um, 
once again, I feel like uh, aside from opera box score, middle class artist is probably the most important, you know, opera commentary uh, piece of media out there. Uh, it just keeps on hitting us with these articles. And it, I, if you're anything like, you know, me, uh, 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 kind of dumb American that I am. I think that it's a very helpful uh, – this article is a very helpful way to not only understand what Brexit was if you're not a member of the European Union or of uh, Great Britain, um, but how it is actually affecting these artists. Because I, I knew that intellectually that, yes, it Brexit makes things harder for artists who want to sing in uh, in Germany or, or Italy or whatever or wherever – but um, it's more intricate than that, but also it's much more emotional than I was expecting, uh, because the line we quoted where uh, in the two minute drill uh, from uh, one of uh, basically saying that the that we have a generation of artists who expected that their careers would take them overseas and that it would be not a not a problem at all to make that jump who are now basically, you know, in the position of, well, I should probably just kind of give up, you know, uh, and it's incredibly sad and very frustrating. Um, but I also was appreciative of he talked to a few singers, including John Tomlinson, who was, of course, around before the European Union. Uh, and to point out that even though, yes, um, there are other countries that have to make that have to jump through certain legal ho hoops, like if you're an American artist coming to uh, to Europe, for example, uh, it's not as easy as if you would be in the EU. But there are so many extra restrictions now, especially when the Brexit negotiations were hadn't handled so badly. There were no extra provisions made to make that easier for artists. And it's it, it's not the same as. As, as, as it was back when John Tomlinson was doing it back in the 60s. Um, and it's something that um, needs to be addressed um, in some fashion or else we're going to lose a whole generation of British opera singers, quite the frankly. Whole, the whole thing feels like that story about the molasses factory that exploded in Boston. And yeah. you're just watching this tidal wave in slow motion over five years. And now we're just starting to see <laughs> these barriers get erected, but there will be more. And mm -hmm. they will be, they will not affect all of the singers equally. And, right. You know, it, it's, it's just going to be a really hard obstacle course for the foreseeable future for, for any English singer. It is going to be a hard obstacle course, certainly economically, right? So in this article, mm -hmm. Paul Carey, and note that he's Welsh, he's not English or Scottish. He goes on, he says, quote, a New Yorker who suddenly had to present a visa and work permit to visit Los Angeles would suffer economically, but probably even more so in feeling they'd had a core piece of their national identity wrenched away, end mm -hmm. quote. The first part of that is absolutely true in terms of this parallel with the U.S. I question the second part of that in terms of Britain's and those 27 other European countries. New Yorkers with visas to L.A., that would be strange. 51% of Britain would not agree with that statement. 51% of England, and look, I'm no Brexiteer, I'm a Remainer, 51% of that country would think that their national identity had nothing to do with continental Europe. But I do think that in terms of the world that these singers were living in when they decided to enter this career, this is just, this is a phenomenal sea change in right. terms of the musical community of Europe you wouldn't have necessarily cordoned the UK off before the Brexit vote. Right. And it's, it's another, it's another sort of example of like, you know, 
people, uh, many people who pushed for this, certainly, and I'm sure quite a few who voted for uh, for Brexit, you know, made the decision because they didn't think it would affect them that much and made that decision effectively for these and they artists. Were actively and they also too. mentioned, you know, fishermen and, and people like this who are now going out of business as well. And I feel like that does kind of maybe perhaps go outside the realm of what we're able to discuss as an opera podcast. But uh, but certainly it is a problem. I think we see even um, even in the arts where you have the interests of a few people who want something specific for themselves that is not in the interest of our art form. Um uh, especially when you see the recent debates around, you know, uh, donors having the ability to change a season to create something when they are largely rich, white, and do not have the same interests as the people actually performing or even necessarily enjoying um, these arts. Um, Very true. Those pigeons in Trafalgar Square definitely coming home to roost. <laughs> Let us wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Oliver Camacho, anything for us in the You know, hopper? I'm not a Twitter person, but somebody pointed to this Twitter account and it is effing hilarious. It's uh, Fake Met Opera. And they <laughs> are doing tweets as if they were the Metropolitan Opera. I will read tweet two for you. Okay. Please stop telling us that Don Giovanni does not belong in our Myths and Legends lineup. A rich white man facing the consequences for a history of sexual assault is obviously a myth. <laughs> and a, another recent one. We understand that not everyone is happy about our decision to promote an opera starring Placido Domingo as part of a Women's History Month programming. We encourage you to remember that no artist in the 137-year history of the Met has loved women as much as Placido. <laughs> Check oh, it out. Throw it, it away. Really throw it away. <laughs> We'll put when a link the satire to that is too real on the <laughs> operaboxscore.com website. Matt Cummings, uh, I got a, a good call that's a lot a little less salty than that, but hopefully just as fun. Um, starting tonight, the night we're recording live from Lincoln Center is reposting an episode from 1994 fe- uh, called "Woman of Legend, Fantasy, and Lore," uh, which is starring Jesse Norman, friend of the show, Hall of Famer Jesse Norman, <laughs> and. Uh, the inimitable Dame Jane Glover as the conductor. And that will be available through April 28th. So you've got plenty of time to check it out, but don't snooze. Weston, I am as silent as you this week and throw it over to Ashley. Mm. Just Ashley, please don't talk about the Razorbacks. Did... Oh, well, I, then I guess our show's over. Did you know <laughs> that the Razorbacks are in the Elite Eight? They are my good call this week because this never happens. Seriously, though. <laughs> Win or lose, this has been a great season for them. This is likely going to be one of Moses Moody's last few games, even as a freshman, because he's probably going to be a top 10 draft pick. Uh, So whether or not they lose to the Bears tonight, this has been an incredible season for them. And my hat's off. And my friend, you got 10 minutes until tip off. That's it for this week's edition of America's talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Operaland bracket stats were courtesy of operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen our bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Again, subscribe to that podcast on Stitcher. Just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed in Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. 
any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is completely illegal. But eh, who's going to know? Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Coach Carrie-Ann Matheson, and your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera under the shadow of my glorious mustache. We're back with an all-new show next week when we break down the final four in our Opera Land bracket. Plus, you get more opera headlines, you get more hot takes, but no more matzah. <sighs> Join us. <laughs>